0: Welcome to the CSIS Podcast, I'm Colin Quinn. This week we're highlighting a fact that can get missed in today's non-stop news. Right now, there are over 20 million people on the brink of famine in four countries, South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria and Yemen. The United Nations has been sounding the alarm for months, but even so, only half the $4.9 billion needed to address this crisis has been funded. This week, CSIS hosted an expert discussion to once again highlight this issue, and it was led by Kimberly Flowers, the director of our global food security project. We begin this week by discussing what common thread links these four countries.
1: Well, the common thread is conflict. Um, But before I dive into that, I think it's important to first state that there aren't actually four famines right now. So we're saying four famines because it's easy to kind of talk about the situation, but it's really four countries on the brink of famine. And that's an important distinction from a technical perspective. Um, The United Nations did declare famine in South Sudan in February this year, but then they lifted it in June. Now that does not mean by any stretch that what's happening is not catastrophic and not historic, because it is in all all four countries. Um, And and the common theme absolutely is protracted conflict. um, certainly, in Somalia, there's also been years of consecutive or consecutive years of drought that has um, had a different influence. But you see, um, I mean, conflict in the sense of there's poor governance, there's insurgencies. I mean, we could talk about the different elements and, and the types of conflict in each four countries. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind, maybe this is also a common thread, but this is a common thread of all all situations when you use the word famine, is that it's man-made and it's preventable. Um, Alex DeWall, one of our speakers on the panel yesterday, made a really interesting point. I thought that it's purposefully is for the gender element man-made. Famine's never been woman-made. But the really important point here is that it's always preventable. There's no reason for this to happen. I mean, there is hunger in the world, and I could talk about why there's hunger. But when it comes to famine or starvation, um, that only happens because it's purposeful.
0: Just going back to what you said at the start about about famine and how it's defined i think that's that's a really interesting point because if it's not defined then you know no action can be taken so so what are the steps there who who does who decides if it's famine who um who rings the alarm and then who goes in to help? How does that all work?
1: So from a technical perspective, there's something called the integrated food security phase classification. Essentially, it's like a, a five categories, and famine would be the fifth category. And right now, these countries are all facing definitely on the brink of famine, meaning mean, they're in category four. Um, and some would argue that there should be four plus one. Of our panelists yesterday, they said Syria should be the plus one. Another said Ethiopia. Most people I hear say that Ethiopia is also very close to the brink. But what gets from four to five as far as the category goes? Well, to, to be a to be in category five, or what's called IPC five, um, there has to be very specific measurements that are happening. And one is that at least two people out of ten thousand are dying every day. There are other measurements as well. But the kind of the point of that is that If we're actually declaring famine, people are already dying. So if you look back at the last big famine, which was 2011 in Somalia, over half of the people who eventually died from that famine had already died before famine was declared um, and before the world really took notice. And 260,000 people um, died from famine back then. And we really, um, the world was criticized for that then and and rightfully should be. And I think should still be criticized now for not paying attention enough. So who declares it? a couple different steps. Um, first and foremost, I think it's important to keep in mind um, the U.S. government's leadership role in this, and that is that there's the USAID-funded program called FUSENET. It stands for the Famine Early Warning Systems Network. It's been around for three decades. It was in response to the 84-85 famine in Ethiopia. but to be honest that the, the famine in Ethiopia that we think of in 84, 85 actually affected 21 other African countries at the time, 14 of which were on the brink of famine, but um, we all remember mostly Ethiopia. Um, but the the NET, um, this program, it works with multiple US agencies from NASA to, to USA to many others, and they have satellite imagery, they have people on the ground, they work in 36 different countries doing with our most advanced technology we have, following everything from rainfall to um, production, um, um, to, to get a sense of what food insecurity looks like sort of in prediction, like six months out. And Fusenet has been showing us very clearly for the last several years, but particularly for the last year, of what we were what we were going to be facing this year from a global perspective. Um, but really, it's the United Nations to come in to actually declare famine. Um, part of the challenge you have is in order to reach those metrics, um, you have to have good in- intel on the ground. And when you have conflict like you have in every single one of these countries, it's very hard to get that kind of data so I've talked to people who have been on the ground in Yemen recently who have said there's absolutely famine happening there reaching these standards but we don't have the right kind of metrics to kind of prove it so that's another complication of this is why you don't want to use the word famine loosely you want to be very cautious and careful in, in using such a term at, at the same time you know how do you kind of get the right information when um, communities are isolated and violence is the norm
0: so Looking back on the 2010-2012 uh, tw- um, Somalia famine, um, I'm reading open that the, it was the deputy head of Somalia for UN Food and Agriculture was saying that the main lesson they learned from this was uh, to respond early on. Have we been able to respond early to these? Is, is It it hasn't broken it into full-scale famine. Um, so what is a response and who does respond?
1: Yeah, great question. And, and sorry, I didn't answer that before when you said who goes in. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think primarily it's the UN agencies is who we think of first, you know, whether that's UNOCHA, whether that's WFP, there's a number of actors. Um, and part of the challenge as far as the response in general is just the lack of funding. So right now, um, the UN has less than 50% of what it, the appeal is, right, of how much funding that they need. And part of that is just, Um, the global donor community strapped because of displaced persons, because of other conflicts, because of lots of different reasons. Um, It's not getting the funding that it needs. But it's typically UN agencies and the UN response system that goes in. um, Everything from saving lives, whether that's providing emergency food aid or water and sanitation, which is a huge issue. I mean, The other thing to think about is the ripple effects of this. So just on the health front, um, right now, I think not a lot of people recognize that in Yemen, they have the largest cholera outbreak we've ever seen, with over 600,000 cases. There is more than 5,000 people a day getting this deadly disease. And now that's spreading into South Sudan and Somalia. And so not only is it about sort of the life-saving shelter and water and food, it's also making sure there's the right kind of water and sanitation and health systems um, to protect the people People, um, You know, there's also from the U.S. government side in you know, there, there's something called OFTA, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, and DART teams, which is, you know, sort of flexible, quick teams that can go out to respond to emergency situations. Um, but the answer also in terms of how we respond earlier well, that also goes back to resiliency. That goes back to long-term strategic investments in international development, um, and so that's that's more complicated because it's 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 not a quick win. It's something that takes years to build up. And that's you know, from my perspective, because I focus on agriculture, is that's helping smallholder farmers get the right kind of inputs like seeds. It's making sure to link them up to markets, whether that's local, regional, or international markets. It's um, helping them understand new technologies. The challenge with some of that is is you can't always control a drought. Climate change is very real. And so you can teach these farmers all that you want and have the technologies and the know-how how to have better um, production and increase their income, but you can't control a severe drought. Um, I mean, you can certainly have new technologies to have drought-resistant maize seeds, for example, which are helpful. Um, but I think some of the challenges that we're seeing is that um, climate change, compounded with Protracted conflicts and bad governance is it's hard to be resilient to that
0: you can spend all those dollars, but then there's a Boko Haram or an al Shabaab or these civil wars that can can put everything uh you know to pot
1: right so that means peace building so that's kind of beyond just development i mean i would go back to the 3d's which mm-hmm. in my little bubble of my world stands for de- um, defense diplomacy and development so it's it's important when you think about what do we do how do we prevent these things from happening well it's a number of things but but it's also about diplomacy um, a global diplomacy but i'm specific to us diplomacy and understanding the role of the state department understanding peace building conflict mitigation and how we work with fragile states, how we can work with and build up governments um, so they don't get in these kinds of crises. Um, The other thing, I mean, in that kind of terminology, um, I'm going to steal something one of our panelists said yesterday because I really liked it. But thinking about, again, the before and the after, is if you spend millions of dollars in development, right? But if you don't do that right, you're going to spend billions of dollars right in in diplomacy efforts and if you don't do that right you're going to spend trillions of dollars in defense and so that's one thing to think about is from those three angles you know so that we don't have to spend more defense dollars which are much more expensive of how you spend money on development and diplomacy first
0: back back to these crises what has the u.s been doing and what um you know has it been pulling its weight
1: yeah in fact it's been pulling more than its weight Um, The U.S. government, and and particularly the Trump administration, I think should be absolutely praised for continuing to be a leader and the primary funder for this. So hands down, the U.S. government is the largest donor in all four of these countries in terms of humanitarian response. Um, The U.S. has given over $1.8 billion in fiscal year 2017 alone. Um, President Trump um, pledged, um, of that $1.8 billion, he pledged an additional, I think it was six hundred and... $39 million at the G20 summit in July, but it sort of got buried in the media, and I think part of the challenge with this administration is even when they're doing some things right, the media and and the public are distracted by all the things that they're not doing right. Um, So, and I would say, there were lots of different numbers in terms of what percentage that is. I I ended up not including it in the piece that I published yesterday because numbers can be tricky, but anywhere between 20 to 30% of all the funding that's happened right now for the Frampton is, is coming from the U.S. government. And quite frankly, that's more than our fair share. So really, it's, it's a matter of, not as the, what the U.S. government is doing, but what are other donors doing? You know, How can we make this more equal so that other donors are contributing um, as much?
0: And I, I suppose what's worrisome for the future is the protracted uh, or impending cuts to, to development agencies, State Department. Um, that could that could eat into this.
1: Yeah. So you know the the Trump administration originally proposed that one third of funding for State Department and USAID should be cut. I think there has been, while I want to praise the administration for continuing to be a leader in humanitarian assistance, um, I also want to criticize them for not really understanding the role again of the long term strategic investments that you need through diplomacy and development. Um, now, having said that, yesterday, and I was just reading this early this morning, so I won't say much on it because I still need to read more. But Congress approved the FY18 budget, and they are not listening to the White House. They Congress, there's plenty of champions on Congress who really understands how we could prevent these crises in the first place and what the role of development diplomacy is. Um, and they approved a budget that while, yes, a little bit less than what last year's budget or current budget is, um, it's nothing what the White House proposed. Um, so I do think that um, the this is why the beauty of the U.S. government and the multiple branches is thankfully we have many people on the Hill who really understand um, the importance of the U.S. being a leader and investing in long-term um, development programs.
0: Coming out of yesterday's, uh, yesterday's panel, yesterday's conference, was there kind of a consensus on, on what the international community needs to do next, needs to do more of? Um obviously more money is, is seems to be one of the top priorities if only half of the, the appeal's been filled.
1: Yeah, I mean I think Everyone on the panel or everyone who even spoke yesterday would have a different answer. And that's why I like to bring together diverse voices. Um, I think Alex Duval of Tufts University um, would probably say the next step is to criminalize famine. He's been an expert in this area. His whole career has written more than a dozen books. And he he would say that famine or to starve is a verb and that it needs to be criminalized and punished and we need to work with uh, international humanitarian law to really bring people Um, to account for their crimes. Um, I think others of our experts would say the State Department is failing on diplomacy and that we have to step up our game and understand the role of that and really emphasize more on diplomacy as well as development, of course. Um, Senator Young, who gave our closing remarks, who's been a great leader on on this um, issue, you know, I think he would talk a lot more about pressuring Saudi Arabia um, for their efforts specifically in Yemen um, and that that is a next step we need to take. I think everyone would certainly agree that the global community needs to step up more. Um, I also think everyone would agree that more people need to pay attention to this. You know, it's the challenge with something like this scale of historic proportions of global food insecurity is it's got a slow onset and it keeps going. So this isn't like a one-off quick thing like, you know, a, a big, you know, moment in war has happened here. It's something that has built up very slowly and will continue to be there. And for years to come, there, even if we responded perfectly now, especially children for generations are going to feel the impact of this. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge that the media and the public um it hasn't really caught on because they don't think enough people are even aware of the
0: issue. Um, finally, what what I suppose what scares me the most uh, about this is that, say from from a conflict angle, this makes strategic sense to the aggressor. Starving a population, demoralizing a population. You see it also with um, targeting of health workers, targeting of hospitals. If there's if there's nowhere to to be saved, then then that helps whoever's fighting um that that's what's really scary here and i i don't see how you can talk somebody out of that 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 is using this as a tool
1: yeah i mean for all all time um, food has been used as a weapon of war um, this isn't a new war tactic it's something that has always been there and it's a very powerful tool because we all need to eat it's used as a recruitment tool it's used to starve out you know specific communities and populations um, and I think the only way you're going to actually solve that is to solve the conflict um, and I'm far from a, a conflict resolution expert except to know that um, conflict and governance make you know are really important um, and and the only way Maybe we're going to actually solve hunger and food insecurity. And, and when we reach all the way into famine is to, to think about how we solve
0: conflict. Kimberly Flowers, I think, you know, we covered this from a very broad angle. It'd be great to go deeper into each one of these. Maybe that's another time. But um, for now, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And that was Kimberly Flowers bringing us to the end of our show. We'll of course be back again next week, so in the meantime, if you've any feedback on the show or any suggestions for what we should cover next, please drop me a line. I'm at cquinn at or you can find me on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.